Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, proud partner in personalized medicine, developing tailored treatments for cancer patients. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anish Chagpar and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about pediatric cancer survivorship with Dr. Nina Caden Lodek. Dr. Caden Lodek is an associate professor of pediatrics in hematology oncology at Yale School of Medicine and director of the Heroes Clinic for Pediatric Cancer Survivors at Smilo Cancer Hospital. Dr. Gore is a professor of internal medicine and hematology at Yale and director of hematologic malignancies at Smilo. It's uh, so wonderful, I guess, that here in 2018, we talk about pediatric cancer survivorship, because I remember when I was a kid, you'd hear about, oh, so-and-so has leukemia, and then you'd never see the kid again. they drop out of school, and that would be that. Well, you know, in one generation, we have taken uh, childhood cancer from being a uniformly fatal disease to uh, cured in about 85% of children. 85%. And, and, and what percent of that is due to this great progress in leukemia? And what of, what percent is in other kinds of cancer? Well, I, leukemia is the most common childhood cancer. It comprises about 30% of childhood cancers. Mm-hmm. But incredible strides have been made even in brain tumors and in uh, solid tumors uh, of different body parts, kidney tumors, and so on. So we've really seen seen success all all around. I, I'm always so impressed um, that uh, you know the pediatric uh, um, cancer clinic is right next to my hematology clinic, and I see the kids coming out with their parents. And you know, I never see kids looking very unhappy. They you know they always seem like pretty matter of fact, and they've got their little toys and everything. It seems like they're tolerating whatever's going on there pretty well. Well, I do think you know, you're a parent. I'm a parent. I think that would we would never wish this and would do anything to avoid sure. our children having cancer, including taking it on ourselves. But having said that, I do think that we've made also a lot of progress in understanding how to better care for these children with the idea that they're going to live long, healthy lives, that the majority of them will. And so it really starts even during treatment in which we encourage um, children to be children. We try to keep them, do as much therapy outpatient, and we encourage them to go to school during therapy whenever they can. And there's a lot of support services with child life and with our social workers to liaison with schools and during therapy and after therapy so that they are living their full lives. That's really amazing. So when do you start plugging them into, well, first of all, why don't we start with what survivorship means and what does a survivorship clinic mean or do? In in, uh, one way, everyone is a survivor who's had cancer because they're, who's alive and, and living 
even if it's during therapy. But when I talk about survivorship, I'm specifically talking about the period after therapy and all the decades that follow in how to optimize quality of life. Now that we have made great strides in quantity of life, how do we optimize quality of life after therapy ends in terms of Typical things like not have not having health chronic health problems or limiting chronic health problems, uh, and also uh, psychological functioning and school functioning and and uh, just living every aspect of your life as healthy as possible. Because the truth is, is that cure must come first, and it's the most important. But many therapies have unintended consequences that can, uh, in health, that can occur in the months after therapy ends, the years after therapy ends, and even decades after therapy ends. Hmm. Well, tell us uh, what some of those unhappy downstream effects are, uh, or the unintended consequences, as, as you put it. Well, I think I. I think that the first thing to know is that there, many of these unintended consequences can be uh, prevented or made less important if we identify them early and start treatment early. So uh, f- some examples would be that there can be problems with growth or going through puberty. There can be problems um, with heart function, with the heart muscle not functioning as well. Um, there can be problems with early cataracts. There, it depends entirely on the therapy the child received, what dose, and at what age, mm. and sometimes the sex as well. So, for example, uh, females who have had chest radiation are at almost 30-fold increased risk of breast cancer, um, usually occurring after they're 25, uh, and that's a risk that is uh, males who have chest radiation are not uh, immune to this, but they're the actual number of cases we see are much less. Mm-hmm. And then so for these young women, we recommend that they start getting breast MRI screening early in life because when we do that, even if they develop a problem, we catch it when it's very small and can be taken care of with surgery only. Mm. So, you know, I, I fortunately there's not, Huge numbers of kids who have cancer, um, but we want to take care of the ones that, that do. Well, interestingly, fortu- fortunately, you're right. We we only have about 10,000 children diagnosed with cancer, somewhere between actually six to 10,000, depending on what you call a child under the age of uh, 21 with cancer in our country each year. But since they're alive and they live in their we are increasing our numbers, so it, there are an estimate of surviving. Patients. Sur- they're surviving and they're living past their cancer, so there are an estimated four hundred thousand childhood cancer survivors in our country right now, and the number will just keep on increasing, um, thankfully. And uh, that means that in the young adult age range, about one in three hundred young adults are survivor of childhood cancer, and so if you think about joining a high school class or a college class at UConn, there, there are going to be a lot of survivors in that group. I was recently at a, uh, 
at a board meeting for some uh, National Institute of Health business, and one of my younger colleagues, whom I've known for a long time, reminded me that he was a survivor of Hodgkin's disease, Hodgkin's Mm -hmm. lymphoma. Uh, He pointed to his neck, uh, and I looked at him. He says, you know, my Hodgkin's scar. And I said, I mean, I'd totally forgotten, because, of course, I don't think of him as a Hodgkin's Mm-hmm. Survivor at all, um, but it just you know you just don't know uh, you know the history of the person next to you. You don't, and I think one of the real the other exciting areas of medical research has been uh, really being able to understand what problems uh, our survivors. Uh, can develop later in life. It's not a guarantee that they'll develop, by the way, if they're at increased risk. It just means that they're at increased risk compared to the person next to them that didn't have cancer. Sure. But it doesn't mean that they probably will get it. It it just means that it's worth giving extra attention to doing what I call a super checkup each year rather than a regular health checkup that anyone should have. Um, these patients, uh, depending on what they had, may have extra tests. So for some people, I may check a, a urine analysis every year to make sure their kidneys are functioning well. Or for another patient, I, I mentioned if there's someone who had chest radiation, I would do a breast MRI. Or um, if there was someone in the school age who had uh, brain radiation, I would uh, think very carefully about doing testing for for learning problems so that they could be identified and the school could know how to deliver the best education plan hmm. for the child. So, And so your colleague or your friend who is a Hodgkin survivor, um, I don't know about what therapy he got specifically, but the things I think about with Hodgkin's patients is there are therapies that make uh, females go into menopause earlier in life at an unpredictable time. So one thing I like to discuss with young women is whether they would want to consider egg harvest if they have not met their life partner and are not ready to start a family so that it's kind of a backup plan. Mm. Um, Another thing we talk about is um, the risk of of heart trouble and in, if they've had chest radiation, you can have early heart attacks. So to if they, what are the symptoms of a heart attack so they can get care if they need it, even if they are only, you know, 25 or 30. Sure. Well, you know, um, with if there's really 400,000 survivors of uh, childhood cancers in our population, there can't be that many docs who have survived worship clinics to follow these people. And that is the challenge. And that's why I'm um, so delighted to be here. I really want to spread the word that after cancer therapy is over, we should rejoice and we should celebrate. But please... Um, make sure that the survivor is getting the, um, as I say, the super yearly checkup that they need so that we can prevent problems because this care could be done at a specialty survivor clinic uh, and there, there's one at Yale, there's ones in, in centers around us um, that are excellent and that's one option. Another option is to have to get a survivorship care plan prepared either by your treating doctor or by uh, a one-time visit to one of these survivorship clinics to be implemented by your local doctor. And in this care plan, it could list like uh, a specific example. So every year get um, get 
this blood these blood tests get get this this type of x-ray every 3 years get and it could just be a prescription for what the care should be and it could be delivered anywhere i i want to spread the word because less than 20% of childhood cancer survivors are getting the, the recommended care and most of it is due to lack of knowledge mm-hmm. and i I think there are a lot of reasons for that lack of knowledge. One of them is that this is an emerging area in medicine, and we're still getting to getting our head around that they're living long, healthy lives, which is wonderful. I think the second is often, um, I think, emotionally, the door closes when treatment ends in terms of hearing anything more about cancer, mm-hmm. and it's terrifying. And I, I think that uh, it would be really great to to get the message across is that this is not necessarily uh, a reason to worry and be anxious so much as being empowered because these things will happen, but why not prevent them from happening or mm-hmm. why not make them um, as insignificant a problem at all if they if they must happen? Because there's a long period for a lot of these conditions in which they're clinically silent, in which they're still deserve intervention, but no one knows there's a problem. You don't have body complaints that say there's something wrong, but there could be an intervention to prevent it from progressing. Mm-hmm. And that's why this kind of yearly, what we would call surveillance or yearly checkup would make make all the difference. And I just wish we could reframe it that way as a wellness visit rather than a cancer visit. Sure, that makes sense. So I think that's one cause. I think a third cause is that as oncologists, we really love our patients so much. We really do. We care. I think that's true of you. I know, Dr. (laughs) Gore. It's It's true of everyone I know. And I think it's very hard after someone's finishing therapy to tell them that there's something else they need to do. <laughs> but but I think we should do it while the door is still open, while we still are in close contact and, and share this for what continuation care should be or what their special checkup should be. Got it. Well, this is a really important uh, topic, and I'm going to want to take and up again in the second half, but right now we're going to take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more information about pediatric cancer survivorship with Dr. Nina Caden Lotic. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, a biopharmaceutical business that is pushing the boundaries of science to deliver new cancer medicines. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about melanoma. While melanoma accounts for only about 4% of skin cancer cases, it causes the most skin cancer deaths. When detected early, however, melanoma is easily treated and highly curable. Clinical trials are currently underway to test innovative new treatments for melanoma. The goal of the Specialized Programs of Research Excellence in Skin Cancer, or SPORE grant, is to better understand the biology of skin cancer with a focus on discovering targets that will lead to improved diagnosis and treatment. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Stephen Gore. I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Nina Caden Lottick, and we are discussing pediatric cancer survivorship. Nina, before the break, um, you were talking about uh, the 
treating pediatric oncologist or perhaps a physician from a pediatric cancer survivorship clinic outlining for the patient and the family kind of the future particular anticipatory health needs, I was thinking it's kind of like when you get a new car and your owner's manual tells you what you're supposed to do at 5,000 miles and 7,000 miles, when you're supposed to change the oil and, and when you're supposed to check the electronics, like that kind of thing. I like that analogy. I think I'm gonna. <laughs> I, I think I'm gonna use it with my patients because that's exactly what it is. It's it's how it's a roadmap for how to st- be the healthiest person that you can be through through all the life stages. And as a pediatrician, I think it's particularly challenging because we take care of. Um, our kids, when they're little, often not able to understand what's going on. Even our teens are at a different developmental stage when they may not have a full understanding. And yet this knowledge they need to have for how to take care of themselves continues into adulthood. So how do we how do we um, kind of, to me, cro- overcome the challenges of time and distance. And I say time because they grow through different developmental stages and have different needs at different times. And then I say distance because young people are really mobile and they're not necessarily going to be, my patients are not necessarily always, most of them actually are not going to live near me when when they may have questions and they will have to, to find the answers from new providers or even know what questions to ask. So, um, the the driver's manual is great because it's always kept in the in the, in the glove compartment, compartment right? and i have thought of things that more simplistic it's really hard for a piece of paper to travel with someone through life right well you what happens <laughs> if you lose the paper if you lose the paper and i have suggested to people crazy things like keeping it in their freezer but you, you know, like places that or you or maybe would, safety deposit box would be a little better but it needs to be handy when you need it well, that's so true. so but and then we've thought about electronic ways. So I've been very excited about the electronic health record maybe as our solution. Uh, I think we ought to really be thinking about ways that we can store this type of information in the electronic health record in a way that kids can access as adults or wherever they are, wherever they move to, if there can be basic elements that are always with them for what their personalized health plan needs to be. Yeah, that's a great idea. And so we're, I'm working on that, and other researchers are around the country too. But I think the, the main thing is also to communicate with the family, with the parents, what, how to teach them how to teach their kids what they need when they grow up, to, for that to be part of the, respon- the many responsibilities we have as parents, but for these parents of survivors to really be able to to convey the idea that they have to their kids as they grow up that that they need to do certain things to stay healthy mm-hmm. and and that includes health behaviors like not smoking drinking in moderation that's good for all of us but it's really important for someone who had a chemo that affected their liver or kidneys um, but it also includes things like be sure to be uh, getting the um, Super checkup. The super checkup. And then I want to add one other thing about it. I want to be really clear. Not everyone is at risk for everything. So I listed some possible problems that can occur. But I really want to say one of the important things is 
to also find out just as much what you're not at risk for as well as what you're at risk for. So not everyone is at risk for infertility. Not everyone is at risk for uh, early menopause. Not everyone is at risk for growth problems. Sure. And that it really depends on what you got or didn't get. Mm-hmm. And as I said, the dose and what age you are. I mean, I know that for regular health maintenance issues in adults and young adults and adolescents, you know, talking about weight control, healthy diet, exercise, blood pressure screening, these are difficult uh, to get average people. And I just have some people very close to me. And of course, I've got my own weight problems, you know, that I know better. Uh, So, you know, knowing things and acting on them uh, is challenging in and of itself. And I can only imagine, maybe I'm wrong, but, you know, I have to imagine that the childhood cancer experience as nice as you guys make it for them, is still got to be kind of scary and traumatic. And it is. I, and I would think that a lot of, you know, adolescents after that and young adults, they probably don't want to think about it. They just want to be healthy now. They do. So I think a lot of uh, the interventions that will work will be the ones that are focused on the on-treatment period and normalize a thing, the message for diet and exercise even then. So we're really trying to work on uh, encouraging uh, lots of fruits and vegetables, lean meat at, from the time of diagnosis. And this is hard because it's really tempting to give a child ice cream treats. I know. It's very hard to say no and to set limits, but we're really trying harder to to educate our families about the benefits of it. They actually, those interventions improve outcome during therapy, and that's been shown, and they are very important after therapy. So trying to make those health behaviors normal earlier on, I think, helps. And and as I said, there's a lot more bang for your buck for we should all exercise, we should all um, eat healthy. But for example, for someone who got a type of chemotherapy called anthracyclines that causes the heart muscle to be weaker with time, we have demonstrated that optimizing your other cardiac risk factors makes the effect of that chemo smaller. So you take two people who got the same dose but the person who subsequently after therapy has lower lipids, doesn't develop insulin resistance, has uh, uh, a a body mass index in the optimal range, is not obese. Doesn't smoke. Doesn't smoke and and has hypertension or whose hypertension was screened and is now treated, they do better. Mm. So we have, so these patients, these survivors have some power to change their whole risk profile by these health behaviors. And we try to teach that to our patients. We try to teach it to parents. And we find that what helps is when the whole family takes it on for themselves. And it's not just for the for the patient, but mm-hmm. for but it becomes a lifestyle change for the whole family. Uh, so we're trying to think about how to do that, and we appreciate that a, a patient is not in isolation; that they're a child is part of their whole family. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, that brings me to like, what about siblings? I, I have to imagine it's hard for siblings this this uh, 
child who's involved with the cancer is getting so much attention from the parents, so much of the family's resources and needs are focused on. There's got to be... And feels uh, guilty about, and also has guilt. That's another issue. That they... They don't have cancer. That they don't have cancer. Yes. And now now you're going to tell them not to eat ice cream on top of it? Well, I think ice cream... Is very good for you in moderation, <laughs> but I think that the strongest message we can give for everyone's wellness is to normalize family life and to set the usual limits. I think actually there's more anxiety and fear and adjustment problems when parents are not setting those limits. And I I also want to appreciate that the a cancer diagnosis impacts the whole family, the siblings the parents, other family members. And when we look at emotional health after um, cancer treatment, rates of anxiety and depression are actually similar to the general population. Is that right? It is. Now, those who are in distress definitely should get and deserve sensitive, um, you know. Care. And excellent care. But when you actually look at rates of problems, it's highest in mothers and fathers. Mothers and fathers have high rates of anxiety and depression and post-traumatic stress disorder Mm. in the years and even decades after, because I think as a parent, there's nothing more life-threatening than to have something happen to your child. And then similarly, we're seeing high rates of um, anxiety and depression in, in siblings. And I think as part of survivorship is the theme is that just because therapy ended, it's important to take good care of yourself in all of these ways afterwards and realizing, as we talked about, unintended consequences mm-hmm. of the therapy and that it doesn't necessarily stop on the date that therapy stops. Is there a higher rate of uh, failure of marriage um, among parents who are dealing with a child who has cancer? Yes, that's that's been demonstrated. There's a higher rate of divorce, there's a higher rate of um, loss of income that definitely during the treatment period, but that can persist because one of the parents has mm -hmm. to give up their job a lot of times. One of the parents has to give their job, or even if they don't give up their job, or even if one parent gives up the job, the other parent may give up other opportunities and goes on a different kind of job trajectory because because of the period in which everything had to stop. Really challenges, I imagine, also just how partners support each other, right? I mean, you know, people may have certain expectations of the of, of their partner who may be responding to the crisis in a different way, and it really is a terrible stressor, I would imagine. It is, and um, our social workers spend a lot of time with, with our parents to help them cope through the experience, but I do really encourage um uh, parents to get that care. I'm not so worried about the treatment on therapy as hard as it is. Not being insensitive, but just saying we've already we've already put into place a lot of resources that are available and a lot of safety nets to help families, and we monitor them very closely on therapy. But what often happens, and families tell me this, parents tell me this, is that when therapy ends, it's it's those things end, and I I. I would think that an important part of survivorship is recognizing taking care of your family, taking care of your relationship, recognizing that having 
a child with cancer is not just an episode and it's over, but that um, it's important to look after your emotional well-being as well, and that can persist in the years and decades after. I looked at my own survivor clinic, and about 40% of adult patients come with their mother still. Um, no, how old fathers. does adults get to you in your clinic? How long? So, so different survivor clinics have different models according to to how they're set up. In my clinic, um, I see everyone as long as they want to see me. So they're diagnosed under the age of 21 to mm-hmm. enter our clinic, but then they can see us as long as they want. And I, we do a consult. I'm not doing all of their care, and I'm not qualified to do all of their care, but I screen for um, complications from their previous treatment. And my oldest patient to date is 69 years old. Oh, my goodness. Mm-hmm. But she's getting great care, and she ha- she's plugged in into all of her um, you know, wellness checkups for the year. So I think... And as part of that, I would go back with the families. I would like to see the family, the parents also taking care of themselves afterwards because mm-hmm. because I think that um, I it's been said in a short way that it's not just the quantity of life, but it's the quality sure. of life that matters. Can I ask what your 69-year-old patient uh, was treated for? Actually, she was treated for Hodgkin, Hodgkin lymphoma. Uh-huh. Yeah, and she's doing very well, but... Yes, it was decades ago that she was treated. She was treated as a teen. Uh-huh. Wow, that's got to make everybody feel pretty good. It it does. I I f- find my work a very positive and optimistic um, uh, career. You know, focus. I really love that, and I love seeing how people go through different life stages. I have some patients that I've had from. Um, on therapy through college and then hearing about their their first job and then their engagement and, and their children it's 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 a lovely thing and this is a great um, boon that we have in pediatric oncology that we have diseases that we have found the right answers for yeah it's um, amazing and wonderful we still have work to do by the way with that 85 percent is not good enough but <laughs> but if we want to do better Dr. Nina Caden-Ladek is an associate professor of pediatrics in hematology-oncology at Yale School of Medicine and director of the HEROES Clinic for Pediatric Cancer Survivors at Smilo Cancer Hospital. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber, reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.